0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Kenyan Wall Street podcast from wherever you're tuning in today, whether you're right here in Kenya or in the greater African region or even beyond. We are very, very happy that you could tune in today and we have something very interesting in store for you. Now, today we're going to discuss in great detail the 2020 finance bill of Kenya. Um, we've gathered the perfect team of experts, the perfect mix of highly qualified and skilled individuals in the tax field from Price Waterhouse Coopers (PwC Kenya) to help us look at this 2020 Finance Bill. They'll help us unpack it, break it down, put it up, you know, put it back down. You name it. We are definitely going to look at what is entailed in the bill and what and what that might mean for you and me as individuals and for consumers, for corporates, and even the nation at large. Now as usual, I am your host, Prince Muragori. I am a resident economist here at the Kenyan Wall Street, and I am also an economic consultant serving as the chief economist at eConsult Africa. And without any further ado, I'd like to invite our guests on today's podcast. Now, usually, you know, we have mostly had one guest to the podcast, but today we are very privileged to have not one, not two, not three, but four very highly experienced and highly skilled experts from PricewaterhouseCoopers, Kenya, PwC, to talk about the finance bill. First off, we have Titus Mukora, who is a partner at PwC in the tax department. Next up, we have Joseph Gidaiga. Joe Gidaiga is a director with PWC Kenya. Next up, we have Maurice Moneki, who is an associate director in direct taxes at PWC. And finally, we have Edna Gitachu, who is a tax policy lead at PWC. So, guys, thank you so much for joining us today. You know, we are doing this online, um, as the new normal is 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 that's how people are calling it but we are very happy that you could join us and uh, help us to unpack the finance bill but before we get to that i'd like um each and every one of you at this juncture to just introduce yourself to our audience and let them know your area of specialization let's start with mr titus mukora over to you titus
1: thank you prince um My name, as Princess said, is Titus Mkora. I'm a partner in the tax department. Uh, My specialty is around international tax and transfer pricing, Uh, but I also have an interest in tax policy and how tax policy is developing in Kenya. Uh, So that's an area of interest for me and that's why I'm happy to be on this podcast today.
0: Thank you for that. Next, we'll have Mr. Joseph Yudhaiga.
2: Good afternoon, everyone. Um, uh, my name is Joge Daiga. I am a director with PwC Kenya. I also help, head up a unit of uh, lawyers, a team of lawyers. And, um, we style ourselves as regulatory compliance and advisory. And we work very closely with our colleagues in the tax team and other parts of PD uh, just to uh, cater to PwC clients. Um, I'm a corporate lawyer qualified to practice in Kenya. As well as in australia and i've been practicing for about 20 years uh, largely in the financial services sector thank
0: you thanks for that introduction joe next up we have edna gitachu
3: thank you prince uh, for allowing me to participate in this show my name is maurice Mwaneki an associate director with the indirect taxes team in PwC Kenya. Uh, my area of focus and specialization is uh, VAT customs and excise. Uh, have experience of over 20 years, have been working with PwC and previously I've also worked with the tax authorities in Kenya and I'm, I'm happy to be part of this conversation. Thank you.
0: Thank you Maurice for that wonderful introduction. Um, I think now finally we can have Edna Gitachu.
4: Thank you, please, for having me on this show. My name is Edna Getasho. I'm the Tax Policy Lead in PwC Kenya. Thank you.
0: Thank you all. Now, I think with all those great intervention, I'm sure our audience is now convinced that we have the perfect team of experts to break down the finance bill for them. And without any further ado, we'll jump right into it. As most people know, the finance bill 2020 was tabled in the National Assembly on 6th May, 2020. Now, three things make this year's finance bill really stand out. First of all, what's interesting to note is that this year's finance bill was tabled earlier than we've seen in previous years, where finance bills would be introduced to the National Assembly after reading the national budget in June. That's the first thing. The second interesting observation that makes it special is that the bill came just a few days after President Uhuru Kenyatta assented the Tax Laws Amendment Act. And finally, and I think perhaps the most outstanding thing is that the Finance Bill 2020 comes at a period during which the world is undergoing significant changes, particularly with the COVID-19 health pandemic. This has greatly disrupted, disrupted and reconfigured the way the world functions and operates. And so with all this in mind, we can definitely all agree that this year's finance bill is worth looking at in great detail and with sound objectivity, which is particularly what we're trying to do today. And so right off the bat, I'd like to begin our discussion today by getting your overview of the 2020 finance bill, you know, just your brief overall comment on it. And let's begin with Mr. Titus Mukora.
1: Uh, Thank you, Prince. And maybe I could, uh, in my brief overview, I could probably just deal with some of those points that you've raised. Uh, Yes, the finance bill came early, but as you remember, there was a court case, I think, sometime last year or the year before, that said that um, we could not implement the finance bill before it was actually passed through Parliament. So before, what used to happen is that the finance bill came into effect uh, simply on submission by, um, by the treasury to parliament under a law that was that allowed, um, uh, allowed the finance bill to come into effect. And I think what the judge said is, no, that can't be done. It has to be actually passed into an act. So one of the reasons it's come early is so that by 1st of June, and, and this is the, sort of the aim, that 1st of June, you actually have a finance act uh, rather than it going in under debate. And the finance act only comes into effect around October or November of this year. So that's that's one of the reasons that has come early. And I think you've also made a very good point around the fact that it comes right after the, the Tax Law Amendment Act was actually signed. And again, uh, what you'll find is that a lot of issues have already been addressed in the tax law amendment act. And if you actually look at the finance bill, uh, there's not much, uh, there there are not as many provisions uh, in the finance bill that we would expect as in in a regular finance bill. And that's because they've been addressed. But what what, what might be interesting to some of um, your listeners is that, in the, uh, some of the provisions that were rejected in the tax law amendment act, have found their way back into the finance bill, literally one week after they were rejected by parliament. So it would be interesting to see how parliament handles uh, those provisions which they, which they had uh, rejected under the tax law amendment act. Or well, maybe I could just ask maybe some of my colleagues also to sort of comment on their overview.
0: Well, thanks for that, uh, Mr. Titer, Mr. Titus. I think Maurice Moneki would come in next and give us his brief overview.
3: Uh, thank you, Prince. Uh, I think the other thing uh, we've we noticed uh, or we see with the finance bill, Is that uh, you know? Once the government reduced the VAT rate from 16% to 14%, there is actually an intent and a drive to expand the the tax, the VAT base, for the government to then be able to recoup the revenues that they are giving up. And so we are seeing in the finance bill that there is there is a proposal to remove any or reduce the zero rating of certain goods and services, as well as uh, the removal of VAT exemptions, such that all the items or services will then be subject to VAT at 14%. And I think this then talks to the government's agenda of uh, expanding the VAT base and enhancing the revenue collection in as much as the VAT rate has been reduced uh, to 14%. And as my colleague Titus has mentioned, most of the changes actually did happen during the the Tax Laws Amendment Act, and some of the proposals around the exemptions and zero rating were also rejected by Parliament at that time, and uh, the National Treasury and the KRA have brought back these changes. So again, it's going to be interesting to see how that will be addressed, but we see the government pushing an agenda of uh, expanding the VAT base. So thank you for that.
0: And thanks to you for that wonderful overview. Finally, we'll have Edna Getachu.
4: Thanks, Prince. I'll not repeat what my colleagues have said, but one of the observations is that there is an attempt by government to expand the tax base. We are seeing very bold moves around introduction of new taxes. One of the taxes is a digital service tax. There is a lot of potential in taxing the digital sector. We are also seeing the introduction of minimum tax. And during the show, I'm sure we'll be able to discuss some of these at great length. So there is a very desperate attempt for the government best to be able to raise more revenue through this finance
0: bill. Thank you, Prince. Well, thanks for that. And now having discussed the overview, we definitely see that there are many nitty gritty details, many finer details that we now need to unpack. And we shall move on now to discuss the specialized questions regarding various themes contained in the 2020 finance bill. And the themes that we'll be looking at today include number one, corporate taxes, number two, tax administrative changes. Number three, employment taxes. Number four, value added taxes. Number five, excise duty. Number six, miscellaneous fees and levies. And finally, non tax legislative amendments. And just to begin with the the first one, corporate taxes. Um, Here, I think I'd like to engage Edna on that. Um, Corporate taxes have seen interesting new uh, proposals in this bill and one of them is definitely the minimum turnover tax some people have heard about it but you know the layman out there who hasn't read the bill might not really understand what it means for them and especially if they are a business owner so kindly go over what is included in that minimum turnover tax and how it particularly impacts small businesses in Kenya during this period when many businesses are struggling to survive. Over to you, Edna.
4: The thanks, Prince. So as I had said in my introduction, there is an attempt by government to mobilize more revenue and therefore this is a new tax, minimum tax, and it is spent at 1% of the gross turnover. So the policy thinking behind this is that all taxpayers are supposed to contribute at least 1% of their gross turnover as taxes. But having said that, are there any exceptions to this rule? We realize that if you earn in employment income, Residential rental income, or you have any capital gains that have been realised, or a person dealing with mining or oil and gas in the oil and gas sector, these are exempt from mining from minimum tax. In addition to this, for the SMEs, to your question around the SMEs, so long as you are registered under turnover tax, then you are also exempt under minimum tax. And if I'm just to give the policy thinking behind this minimum tax. Mm-hmm. It was really to to bridge the gap between taxation of SMEs and other taxpayers. SMEs are already taxed under the turnover tax regime, where similar to minimum tax, they have to contribute at least 1% as turnover tax, 1% of their gross turnover as turnover tax. So in terms of the impact to the SMEs, they are excluded under the ambit of minimum tax, but for those who are not registered under the minimum, t- I mean, the turnover tax, and per- perhaps I should have said by saying that by SMEs from a tax perspective, you're looking at businesses with a turnover of between 1 million and 50 million Kenya shillings. So if you're not registered under turnover tax, because they have an option to be taxed under the ordinary tax regime, where their profits are subject to 25% tax, it is time to ask yourselves, is it worth it for for them to continue being taxed under the ordinary tax regime? Because if they're supposed to contribute at least 1% of their gross turnover as tax, then it makes no difference for them to either be under the ordinary tax regime or under the turnover tax regime. But uh, with that, there are also quite a number of challenges, Prince, that come with the introduction of this minimum tax. And one of the challenges that I would like to single out, you had alluded to this, is the timing of the introduction of this tax. Mm -hmm. Currently, quite a number of businesses are struggling to remain afloat and they are having very serious cash flow concerns. So I'm not sure that this is the right timing for introduction of minimum tax. This is an area that government would want to consider and maybe defer until we are over with the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. And another challenge that comes to mind is around the rate that is being proposed. The rate of 1% is very high. If you have to look at other countries in the region, that's Kenya, Uganda is also proposing to introduce minimum tax. We have the West African countries and Nigeria. The rate is 0.5% of the gross turnover. So the rate is quite high and perhaps Parliament should also consider this, even as they seek to implement it in the future. There should also be certain exemptions when it comes to minimum tax, because like for businesses, new businesses, you do not necessarily make profits the first year. So with that in mind, it becomes a very punitive tax to be introduced. So that's a very brief overview of the minimum tax, Moragori.
0: Well, thank you. I think you've summed it up quite well. It's a new tax and definitely coming in very interesting times. Um, And so, Just as you've said, uh, the timing definitely plays a key role. And closely related to this newly proposed uh, tax on the corporate taxes side, we have another one which is called the digital services tax. Now for this, I'd like to engage Mr Titus. Uh, The 2020 finance bill has introduced a 1.5% tax on any income that is obtained from services derived in Kenya through a digital marketplace. And so perhaps you can begin by talking about, you know, what does it mean a digital marketplace and now move on to unpack what that means for foreign firms that are operating in Kenya's digital marketplace. Because we've seen in a number of countries in various jurisdictions around the world, they are moving on to this digital taxation. And perhaps now Kenya is trying to join them. But um, would it be we, we would want to know what that means for Kenya and particularly for farms operating in the mobile, uh, in the taxi hailing or food delivery business that use these apps, what that means for them. So over to you, Titus.
1: Thanks, Prince. Um, uh, you are right. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk globally around uh, how to tax um, sort of these uh, very technology-oriented uh, businesses, um, and it's very important to note that uh, when we talk about you know technology-oriented businesses, remember that most businesses now have a very significant component of theirs that is uh, driven and by a technology so you've got to be quite careful when you're talking about you know digital businesses and 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 trying to define exactly what do you mean uh, by digital businesses? Um, and I'll come to that a bit in terms of who is targeted in respect of this digital services tax. Um, but as you said, um, this, this is a tax that is uh, the, the, the taxation of some of these companies has become quite a difficult issue. But that issue is actually being resolved in by the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, and through a mutual inclusive process that in, actually includes Kenya. As part of that mutual inclusive process and the reason that this is being tackled on a global level under the OECD auspices is because there's a huge uh, it becomes a huge problem if you try and tax these companies uh, unilaterally because what will end up happening is that these companies will be double or triple taxed on the same income um, if there's no coordination between the countries as to how to tax them and also you know it will be very difficult for these companies to really comply with say 150 different tax regimes when they're really not present in those countries in 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 in, in the way say your traditional uh, businesses might be present in that company, in, in that country So, there has been a lot of clamor that the resolution as to how to tax this company should be within the OECD process. Although some countries have proposed a tax, uh, very few have actually gone ahead and done it. Uh, Kenya seems to be uh, very much on the path of actually implementing this um but you know it is uh really riding against sort of the, the 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 current idea that this should be done in a globally coordinated manner so it is it is unfortunate that we decided to make this I uh, sort of like to take this sort of unilateral approach but coming to the tax itself um, again um, when you actually then decide okay well we, you know we're going to go forward and actually um, have a digital services tax uh, you've got to be very careful that you've properly defined exactly who uh, you're trying to tax you have to be careful as to exactly what amounts that you're trying to uh, that you that what amounts that you're trying to tax i think what we have is uh um the idea that uh we're going to tax uh digital type transactions at 1.5 percent of what they're calling the gross transaction value and really what the what what the law suggests is that uh, the the the, the that if you're operating a digital marketplace and that's the term that's being used if you're operating a digital marketplace the transactions um which you earn revenue from that digital marketplace will be taxed at 1.5 percent of the gross transaction value and you know from that of course i'm sure most of your audience will be asking what is a digital marketplace and what is gross transaction value Mm -hmm. and the digital marketplace has been this defined as a platform that enables direct interaction between buyers and sellers of goods through electronic means. Now, you may think, okay, well, you know, that sounds like, um, uh, an, in, uh, you know, an infinite But the definition if you really look at it is can be interpreted in a very narrow way because it appears to be targeted towards what we call platform companies where you're an intermediary and linking a buyer and a seller so and 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 then. That then narrows it to a, uh, um, um, uh, a, a narrow range of companies. And one of those companies, those companies will tend to be what you uh, you mentioned, your ride hailing apps, your food delivery apps. Um, and it could also be your e-commerce type apps where you're selling on a platform. But even with those e-commerce apps, it seems to be targeting where you're acting as a platform company, in other words, you're not buying and selling your own goods. Um, you're not, sorry, selling your own goods, but you're a platform company that provides the platform for other people to come and sell goods on your platform. And those are two distinct models in, in the e-commerce business. So there is an important, it, it's really important that um, that it is clear that this definition or, um, because I'm not sure whether this the bill in reality targets that narrow range of companies, if that was the intention, or it's simply um, what actually arises from the definition that has been put in place. And this, uh, some clarity would be required. But if you look at it, what companies are not included in here? And the big companies that you won't find in that kind of definition are those that, one, don't uh, earn um, um, revenue from 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 their customers. And who, who are those? Those are, take, for example, your social media companies or your search engines. So when you, as a uh, go on to a search engine, you don't pay the search engine anything. When you go on to your um, favorite social media site, you don't pay the social media site anything. So actually, it's actually all free so these companies don't seem to be uh, included in that and these companies revenue is actually an advertising model Um, and and there is a different issue around advertising and whether the uh, payments of adverts are subject to withholding tax in Kenya but that's not uh for discussion probably in this uh section there are also the content producers um who, who are another category of companies that don't appear to be included here because they produce their own content and you pay a subscription either for their music or you pay a subscription to watch their movies so they are not acting as a platform where they are putting buyers and sellers in touch with each other they are actually allowing you to stream their own music and 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 their content but going at to uh, go, going to and, and that's about who is targeted in this and that's really important for clarification but also the the amounts that are being targeted and actually there's a huge complexity in this and 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 you really just need to look at um, the invo- I don't, I'm not even sure it's an in- it's called an invoice but what you receive when you um, when after finishing your ride on one of these ride hailing companies and if you look at the breakdown actually uh that what exactly is the revenue that the ride hailing company gets because remember there's a huge part of what you pay if you if you if you if you go from say westlands to town um what you and you're charged 200 shillings of that 200 shillings you know about 150 of it is actually going to the driver or or the owner of that car so that isn't revenue that is being earned by the platform company they only earn a commission um so again you know what is gross transaction value is important to define that because again that's um not very clear And then um, the way the definition has also been uh, written is it's targeting non-resident firms, but it's sort of written in a way that says non-resident firms who accrue income in Kenya. And the problem is a lot of these companies are outside of Kenya, and they say they don't accrue income from Kenya because most of their business activity is outside of Kenya. But that's maybe a a technical tax issue that I probably won't um, uh, go into to uh in this forum. Uh, but what would be the impact of um of of of, of this judge just, i think the easiest one is that you know you're gonna charge me 1.5 percent i'm the easiest thing i would do is just basically pass on that 1.5 percent to the user of the service or to the customer mm-hmm. so what would happen is when you now finish your ride in that ride hailing in in one of these ride hailing companies you will now have an extra 1.5 percent being charged on you and that's the easiest thing that um uh that these companies would and it's it's a very problematic because what it ends up doing is increasing the cost of that product and it is really not an income tax and this is really the distortion from an economic perspective that arises because an income tax is a tax on the income of 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 the person providing that service the platform service but if that person simply passes it on to you then it is not a tax on their income it is actually operating akin to a sales tax and that's probably going to be the easiest thing uh, if you're not getting the consensus of some of these companies is that if these companies are saying that hold on uh, there is this consensus approach that we're trying to do at the OECD level um, if they're not in agreement with this they simply pass it on to you uh, as, 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 as the consumer of the service and so it just makes the cost of that product more expensive and really distorts the whole um, Economic setup because you know, these e commerce companies, these ride hailing apps, and whatever actually are very important or critical in terms of getting um, this uh, the, the, the certain businesses getting the mass, or, um, uh, uh, getting certain businesses to achieve. Uh, um, a critical mass in their operations so so i i, I would think I'm, I'm not sure whether that has been analyzed or whether that is a critical factor that's been taken into account but i think it will be the cost will just simply be passed on uh to you uh, to 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 you uh,
0: to you and me well thanks for that maybe i'll stop there yeah, yeah. yeah thank, thanks for that and i i, I definitely agree that. When it comes to proposing some of these new taxes especially those which are not conventional uh, they are very new in nature some tax incidence analysis needs to be conducted to mathematically check you know if this tax is charged on this product who bears it more is it the producer or do they systematically just pass it down to the to the consumer and very closely related to that uh, tax under uh, this bucket of corporate taxes We have another move by the government uh, which proposes to reduce some corporate tax deductions that were previously available to corporate bodies. We are seeing some things like um, the bill proposing to disallow subscriptions payable to trade associations and club subscriptions paid by an employer on behalf of their employee. And also disallowing expenditure of a capital nature incurred by a person on the construction of public schools public hospitals and roads and similar stuff and finally another one which i want us to talk about is that the bill has reduced tax incentives available to companies listing their shares at the nairobi securities exchange now uh, mr titus you know that kenya has not not so very many companies are listed on the stock exchange and so if you are not giving incentives uh through taxation what what impact do you do you see this having uh on, on the registration of companies in the Nairobi Securities Exchange
1: Okay thanks Prince um and maybe maybe two answer your question, what I'll do is just give again some context around what the current thinking in terms of designing and fashioning income tax in Kenya is. So the current thinking, and I think this is um, um, very much pushed by also multilateral institutions, is that we should try and reduce as many many incentives and exemptions that we have in the Income Tax Act. Now, if you look at our tax-to-GDP ratio as Kenya, our tax-to-GDP ratio is very low. Now, it is higher than the, say, African average, which I think is about 14%, and I think our tax-to-GDP ratio is around 18%. So it is higher than the average, but it is still the African average uh, tax-to-GDP ratio is one of the lowest in the world. And so the idea is that, African countries need to collect more tax and aren't collecting a lot of tax. And then if you narrow it down to Kenya, you look at and you see one of the biggest culprits is corporate tax. And I think, uh, you know, there was some statistic that the KRA gave to Parliament that there are about, I think, uh, you know, 100,000 companies registered for tax. And I think only 20,000 of them are paying tax or even less. I think it was about 6,000 companies that are paying tax. So. If you look at corporate tax as a percentage of all taxes collected, that has been decreasing. Corporate tax has been decreasing as a percentage of all taxes um, collected. So the question is why? And they have hit on this answer that, well, there are too many exemptions and incentives in the Income Tax Act. And these exemptions and incentives do not actually add much value. And what do we mean by they do not add much value? Nobody is coming to list because I have an exemption on the NSE or a reduced tax rate. No one is coming to set up a business in Kenya because you have an EPZ or an SEZ regime. That is the argument that has been put forward and against the tax incentives. So the idea is have a simpler act, reduce all these exemptions and incentives that are clogging up the act, making the act complicated, reducing your tax collection. Reduce all of them and then have a lower tax rate, reduce your corporate tax rates to compensate for the for, to, for, for the for the removal of these exemptions, these incentives to compensate for that, reduce your corporate tax rate. So we've seen under the tax law amendment act the corporate tax rate has been reduced to 25%. And then the idea is reduce that, but remove all these incentives and exemptions. Um and then you you're still able to spur the businesses with this uh, lower corporate tax rate. You have a simpler act, and so forth, and so forth. Now, it's not in my place to, and probably not in this forum, to say whether you know all these assumptions being made are correct or not correct and whether they've been tested or not tested. I think that's the policy that has been adopted and that's how we're going to go forward. In respect of your specific question on this, uh, on the entities that have been listed on the NSC, I think the, 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 the impact is much less because what happened is that with the reduction of the corporate tax to 25% there was this whole category of businesses that were supposed to be getting special exemptions I think 27% and 25% that then became irrelevant because anyway the corporate tax rate had been reduced to 25 percent and I think there's just another section of businesses whose corporate tax rate if you listed and this was all dependent on how much of the company you listed and if you listed a significant amount of your company you would get a corporate tax rate I think that was below 25 percent so that has now um, all of that has uh, gone away but remember that the corporate tax rate has in any case come down to 25 percent so it's rendered some of that uh, to be to to be relevant, uh, and I guess again the argument—if you put this argument to the government or to KRA—they would say nobody ever came to list because of that corporate tax rate. People were listing or not listing for a variety of other reasons. So why should we give away anything around the
0: corporate tax rate? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see, and you've been speaking about income tax exemptions, which I think I'll now uh, plug Edna into the discussion. We have seen that the finance bill proposing that income tax exemptions be reduced. And one of these proposals is under home ownership. So the bill proposes that, you know, income of a registered home ownership savings plan uh, cannot now be tax exempt. It's subject to income tax. And I'd like you to comment on the significance of this, particularly uh, on two perspectives. First of all, how will it affect the Big Four agenda of affordable housing? uh, Because suddenly owning a house will become a bit more expensive. Uh, And number two, we had seen this pass through parliamentary proceedings just a short while ago, and then it's found its way back into this finance bill. So kindly comment on those Edna, welcome.
4: Thank you Prince. I think I'll start with your latter question. It was very, very disappointing, I must say, for National Treasury to recycle this same proposal that had been rejected by Parliament under the Tax Laws Amendment Bill. And the reason why the uh, Parliament rejected it is because it was going against the Big Four agenda. So we hope that Parliament is also going to reject it, given that there is a parliamentary standing order that says that no bill or no motion can be reintroduced in Parliament within a period of six months from when it was last debated. So it is our hope that it will also be rejected. But having said that, Let's look very closely at this home ownership savings plan. And any individual who seeks to own a home would have to rely on savings to be able to at least get the initial deposit that they require. And there are different avenues for these savings. You have some will save through circles, others through banks, and we also have the home ownership savings plan. This was introduced way back in 1995, and the rationale for this was to just mobilize funds for individuals for them to be able to to, to own their own home But we have seen that the incentive has been very low. Up to 2017, the incentive was about 48,000 shillings per annum, and it was supposed to run for a period of 10 years. So if you multiply 48,000 by 10 years, that would give you about Mm 480,000, which would be very low for you to be able to afford a house. Now, in 2018, this was changed to 96,000 per annum. So for a period of 10 years, this is going to give you 960,000. Still low, but better than the initial 480,000 that was there. But having said that, the uptake has also been very very low and it's time for the stakeholders involved and including National Treasury to consider the question of why is the uptake very low? Is it because the incentive is low and is it time for us to actually review this incentive upwards? If I was just to very quickly compare this incentive against the mortgage interest relief, The mortgage interest relief is at the rate of 500,000 shillings per annum. So comparing that with 96,000, 96,000 shillings is very, very low in my view. So perhaps questions need to be asked. Is it the structure of how the incentive is, or is it whatever is available in the market that is causing there to be a low uptake? So those are the challenges, but to your question, we really hope that this is not going to be passed by Parliament. Thank you, Prince.
0: Well, thanks to you for that insightful discussion. And having spent significant time talking about the corporate taxes, we'll now cross over to tax administrative changes that are contained in the finance bill. And the first one on which I'd like to um, engage Titus is on the voluntary tax disclosure program. We know that uh, the, there has been an application of waiver penalties of of uh, of waiver of penalties and interest. But now what we are seeing in this finance bill is that the waiver is uh, being indexed uh, or categorized into what percentage of a waiver you can get in the first year, which is 100%, 50% waiver in the second year, and 25% waiver in the third year. So with this, Amnesty is being provided in the form of voluntary tax disclosure programs. I'd just like you to comment on how effective these tax disclosure programs have been working in kenya historically and whether this new categorization uh incentivization in terms of the sooner you do it the better how do you see that playing out thank you
1: yeah thanks prince um i usually um I'm, i tend to be quite critical of a lot of measures that are introduced um police tax policy measures but this is one which i think is actually a really uh, really great step and a really great move Uh, both by KRA and Treasury, and I'll tell you why, is that um, there has, if you look at the tribunal, the tax tribunal, and you look at the high court, uh, there's always, there are so many tax cases. Um, I mean, 10 years ago, you would hardly, Open the the newspaper, the, the the general national newspapers, and see any reporting of any tax case. Nowadays, you know, it even makes the nine o'clock news. Uh, some of these tax cases even make the nine o'clock news. So are, the 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 current environment has been very litigious, and the 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 approach of uh, tax collection has been extremely aggressive. And I think it's time we sort of took a step back and looked at a more collaborative way of um dealing with tax collection and this voluntary tax disclosure pro- program really falls within that uh, category so it is really a positive move now um historically i and i can say i don't have uh, data around this but from what i would call anecdotal evidence it's clear that you know taxpayers do not Go go and make voluntary disclosures to the KRA. They don't go and say, "Oh, I didn't. De- I haven't paid this tax. I would like to pay this tax." And there are many reasons for that. There are first of all they are very steep penalties and interest. Uh, so you make a voluntary disclosure, yeah, but you get slapped with these penalties and interest. So this acts as a real disincentive uh, to making such a voluntary disclosures. But there's also the bureaucracy of doing it because implementing Changes on ITAC and getting even decisions to be made by KRA uh, tend to be a very uh, burdensome process, and so a lot of spares don't get entangled and embroiled in that kind of um, administrative process. So nobody does. Make, so I well, and I say this is uh, anecdotal evidence. I don't think very many people make voluntary disclosures, but I think it's over ten years ago. That we had a tax amnesty program, which was very successful. Uh, uh, I was I, I was a young professional then, a very young professional, and. Um, the, and, and, and what it looked like, there was a very significant uptick of that tax amnesty program. So it's, it's it's a bit sad that it has taken this long for us to get another program, such program. But I think it would be very successful, and it'd be a real, um, it's, it's it's a really positive way of collaborating with the taxpayers and trying to raise revenues through that. And if you look, and one of the points I wanted to, maybe the last point to make, right, um, if you look at corporate taxes, I I think the figure is about 60 or 70 percent of corporate tax, is that is paid in the country comes from a, a, just a handful of companies that sit in the large taxpayers' office here. So it's probably 40, 50 companies that are you no, know, maybe 11, 100, maybe 100 companies that are paying about 60 to 70 percent. Uh, PWC did a study last year in respect of the Kenyan banking sector. And the Kenyan banking sector uh contributes about 25%. And if, if you even look at it, it's probably 10 banks contributing about 20% of the total tax, corporate tax collection. Uh, what's the point? What's the point I'm trying to make in the context of the voluntary tax disclosure program? The, the point I'm making is that a huge uh, part of the, the the voluntary tax disclosure program is aimed at companies that are really multinationals or the really big companies in Kenya. And those companies actually do have a very high compliance culture. So what you find is that some of these areas where there, ha- they ha- there has been an inadvertent um, commission in in relation to their taxes, this company's preference would be actually to collaborate and disclose to the KRA rather than wait for KRA to come audit and if they do pick it up, you have a defense and you're going to dispute it and, 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 and fight it all the way to the Supreme Court. I think these are companies that actually have a very high compliance culture and who actually want to collaborate with the KRA and actually make this kind of disclosure. So I think it's a really positive move and I think it's going to be very welcome to the business community.
0: Well, thanks for that. And um, speaking of some of the positive moves that are happening, we are going to jump into the next category, which is employment taxes. And Edna, I'd like to request you to take this one. one. interesting thing that's happened on this space is that there has been the expansion of the residential rental income tax bracket, which was previously uh, capped at 10 million. It's been uh, increased to an additional 15 million. So Edna, I'd like you to, to talk about how you feel this expansion will impact homeowners. And another thing would be to comment on the the floor value of 144,000. It has not been changed. Only the 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 top value, the upper limit of 10 million, has been moved to 15 million. But then there's also suggestions that maybe 144,000 may be too low. So give us your thought your thoughts on that.
4: Thanks, Prince, for that. So as you mentioned, currently the income tax bracket for the residential rental tax is between 144. 140- 10 million. The finance bill proposes to increase the upper limit from 10 million to 15 million. This is a very welcome move from the home on, for the homeowners. And the reason why this is a welcome move is because you will realize that for residential rental income, the tax rate is 10% of the gross tax, which is lower than the current 25% tax on profits. So it is a welcome move. But perhaps it's also time for us to think about the rate. Through the tax laws, amendment act we have seen the rate for corporate tax come down from 30 percent to 25 percent we have also seen that the top marginal rate for individuals came down from 30 percent to 25 percent. so is it time for this rate of 10 percent to also come down to say between five and eight percent and the reason why this proposal would be valuable at this point in time as we say earlier on during this period of the pandemic businesses are struggling to keep afloat and some of the costs that have been targeted are around employee costs. Cost, cost. And we have seen quite a number of employees take salary cuts. So with these salary cuts, they're also struggling with your rental income. So the landlord, what is going to the homeowners, is much less than what they expected. So to push on them, perhaps it would also be good to reduce the rate from the 10% to 5%. But having said that, in terms of the the floor rate, the floor value of 144,000. This one also needs to be increased in line with the Tax Laws Amendment Act. Again, any income that is below 24,000, 24,000 and below is not subject to tax. If you had to multiply 24,000 by 12, that would give us 288,000. But again, if you had to compare this with SMEs, under the turnover tax regime, we recently saw a public notice issued by Kenya Revenue Authority. And in the public notice, they say that if you earn an income that is below 1 million, then you're not subject to tax. So the same also needs to be carried across to residential rental income. And maybe the floor should then be increased from that 144,000 to 1 million. So the taxable threshold is between 1 million and 15 million. Thanks,
0: Prince. Well, thanks to you for that clarification. And right before I let you go, I'd like you to tackle another one still under this bracket of employment taxes. We are seeing that there's a newly introduced taxation of uh, a newly proposed tax, taxation of monthly or lump sum pension to a person who is 65 years of age or more. Previously, this was exempt from tax, but the proposal is to have it within the tax bracket. And, you know, given the current situation, most of the people, most of the senior citizens do not have uh, other forms of income. So would this tax overly burden them in your opinion?
4: Yeah, thanks Prince for that. Yeah, I think one of the concerns that I have around this is that it was also debated during the tax laws amendment bill cycle and Parliament rejected the proposal. And the reason they rejected it is exactly what you have said, because it's going to erode the earnings of the retirees. So it was it's very disappointing to see that it has been recycled through the finance bill. But to your question, With the erosion of the income by the retirees, this is going to really disadvantage them. These are senior citizens who already contributed to the development of this nation, they played their part. So I think it's very unfair for us to seek to tax them at this point. If you look at their day-to-day living, one of their biggest bills is around health care. So we are saying that we are going to, we are proposing to reduce their income, and yet from a healthcare perspective, their bills remain, or in any case, they are actually going to go up, depending on what kind of conditions that they are dealing with. So we'll be leaving them at the masses of their families and also their friends to be able to take care of their health concerns, which I think is very unfortunate. So my prayer to Parliament would be for them to reject this proposal one on the basis that it has been reintroduced before the lapse of 6 months and secondly and more importantly these people already contributed they did their they gave their fair share to this economy let's respect them they are senior citizens let's take care of them and let's not subject them to any further tax thank you prince
0: well thanks thanks for that insightful discussion i think at this point i'd like to engage um mr morris moneki particularly on the bracket of um value added taxes now VAT definitely has a lot going on so maybe the first task for you would just be to unpack some of the big developments that have been proposed here and then the two specific questions that I'd like you to talk about include the issue of input taxes so there has been new additional criteria proposed for input taxes But the challenge is most businesses are not able to know what goes on on the supplier side, whether the supplier has filed taxes. And so there are many information asymmetries that exist in that kind of uh, supply chain arrangement. So kindly go over some of these major developments and then talk about this issue of the input tax deduction.
3: Thank you, Prince. I think uh, as we've said, uh, the major development around VAT in Kenya uh, started off in uh, in April when the president uh, announced the reduction of the VAT rate from, 14, from 16% to 14%. Uh, and then this, of course, has a major impact in terms of uh, government revenue collection. And so some of the changes we are seeing around the finance bill are actually around uh, extending or expanding the, the VAT base. Now. To your question around the input VAT deduction, Maybe it's good that I give a, a background so that then you get a, a perspective of where KRA is coming from and where they are headed. I think uh, over the last couple of months, uh, I would actually say maybe one or two years, the KRA has been talking about uh, you know a lot of VAT fraud, and uh, businesses have also been uh, hit with what we call uh, VAT auto assessments, the VAAs, and what we are seeing KRA talking about a lot is what they call the missing trader tax evasion scheme, where they are a lot of suppliers or businesses that are claiming input VAT that then KRA are saying that this VAT, we cannot see it from our side being paid over to government and have been challenging businesses, you know, who supplied this to you? Who did you buy from? And how come the VAT has not been paid? Now, the recent development has been that some of these traders have actually been taken to the court. Others have been subjected to the tax appeals tribunal and to summarize the outcome of those cases is that they, in actually in the recent past, I would say in a month, a month ago the Tax Act Appeals Tribunal actually ruled in one particular case that a business does, is not required to prove uh, whether their supplier actually paid the VAT over to the KRA. Their burden of proof ends where they are able to demonstrate I purchased goods I paid for the goods, I received an invoice, and I actually have an ETR receipt for my purchases. And that is sufficient enough to then claim input VAT deduction as per the current VAT law. Now, what we are seeing the KRA and National Treasury trying to do is to address that challenge that that has been presented by the court and the tax appeals tribunal, by then coming back and amending, seeking to amend the VAT law to then require any business that is claiming input tax to first prove that the supplier has actually accounted for their VAT. Now, it's very unfortunate that the KRA is then trying to pass their responsibilities or delegate their responsibilities to a taxpayer. And as you've said, it is very difficult for these taxpayers or this uh, buyers to be able to defend or prove that their suppliers have actually paid VAT. And I think we need to remember that These suppliers were actually registered by the KRA. The only reason you buy items from a a person and you accept their invoice is because they have provided you evidence that the KRA has registered them and they actually have a PIN or a VAT number and they have an ETR machine. Now, we hope that this proposal will be rejected by Parliament. And our suggestion and our proposal for KRA is to actually consider the use of technology in actually being able to cross-reference the supplies or what businesses are reporting as their sales and what others are reporting as their purchases. And one of the areas we would hope that KRA would look at is their new uh, ITAC system to be able to enhance it, to have the capacity to capture some of this information. And this is not something new that uh, we are calling on KRA to do. We've seen other jurisdictions, including our neighboring countries like Rwanda, actually using technology to be able to tell where businesses are reporting their VAT correctly and where the other businesses are then claiming input. And so I think the challenge is to carry to adopt technology rather than burden taxpayers, because if they do that, then what we expect or anticipate to see will be a lot of litigation. Taxpayers going to court to to fight this because then they are not able to uh, demonstrate that their suppliers have actually accounted for VAT. So I I would like to leave it at that, Prince. Thank you.
0: Well, thanks. We can leave that as, as is and perhaps cross over to another closely related bucket, which is excise duty. Now, um, we know that in this 2020 finance bill, there has been a downward review of alcoholic strength of beverages, basically to as a way of trying to get the government to capture more revenues from these alcoholic goods which are seen as seen goods or goods that have high social costs over and above individual costs. Now, I'd like you to comment on what you feel that could mean going forward, given that the beverages industry, the alcoholic beverages have seen a lot of taxation push and pull back and forth. And this one is definitely aimed at trying to squeeze more money out of that sector. But on a softer issue, I'd like you to comment on what this means for consumers because uh, Kenyans are price sensitive. They have high price elasticity of demand. And so when prices of alcohol goes up, we have seen in the past that people shift to the lower lower priced illicit brews. So what do you see going forward with this new tax proposal?
3: Thank you. Thank you, Prince, for that. Yeah, and, and I agree with you. I think the intention of the government here uh, is to increase the revenue collection from excise on uh, these alcohol uh, products and the proposal to review the strength of alcohol uh, and the tax excise tax brackets means basically that uh, more products are going to move from the category of beer. Which has a lower attracts a lower excise rate to the category of spirits, which are subjected to higher excise duty rates. Now, again, as you've raised uh, pointed out, there is need for the government to then assess, and the KRA to also assess what's the impact of these changes to the end product or to the price of the end product to the consumer. Now, you know, I'll take you back about 10 years ago. You know, when we had a lot of incidences where people were. Uh, taking these illicit brews and we had a lot of, uh, I would say, citizens, Kenyans getting blind or sick. And the social cost of that was actually, uh, you know, the cost of treatment because people turned to these illicit products. And I think the government then needs to be careful to assess whether we're going back to that period because the taxes that are being imposed on these products are actually going to be significantly higher. And I think, and then also the context of the current environment we are in where a lot of people have lost jobs, Uh, you know, the ability of consumers to purchase is extremely depressed. And, And as you've said, then what will tend to happen is there is going to be proliferation of illicit drinks out there in the marketplace which will then be attractive to these consumers who cannot afford these clean and healthy products and, and actually then it becomes counterproductive for the government because then the revenue take will not increase and the cost the social cost will actually increase because at the end of the day when these consumers are sick or you know, turned blind or whatever happens to them, they still end up in the hospitals where the taxpayer is still going to pay the price or pay for their treatment. So again, it's an area that the government then needs to have a balance on targeting revenue, but also making sure they do not push people to these illicit products. Thank you for that, question.
0: Well, thanks for that. And finally, I'd just like you to give an overview of what ha- what's happening in the bucket of miscellaneous fees and levies. Are there any significant developments that you wish to talk about on that sector?
3: Yes, thanks for the question. So around the miscellaneous uh, fees and levy, I'll only highlight uh, one particular item that uh, the government has uh, proposed to introduce, and this is the introduction of 2.5% additional duty on goods that are being entered into Kenya from the export processing zones. And and why this is important to highlight is that uh, a few weeks ago, I would actually say three months ago, the government allowed 100% access to the local market for EPZ enterprises whose export markets have been negatively impacted by the covid-19 pandemic you know so rather than them closing shop and laying off their workers you know we're talking about almost 30,000 workers the government then said we will allow you to sell your products into the local market and we've seen a lot of those companies have then had to innovate because some of the products that they were manufacturing were not suitable for the local market and many of them are actually have gone into the space of manufacturing PPEs, you know the uh, protective gear that is required, you know the masks and the likes, and now the government is then seeking to tax them, an additional two point five percent, and what I would like to point out is that. In, to the extent that the government has allowed the 100% access into the market, they are not exempt from duties, so they still have to pay the customs duty. If it's 25% and 14% VAT, now there's an additional 2.5% additional duty that is being imposed. And finally, we also need to point out that the EPZ Act actually imposes a 2.5% surcharge on domestic sales from EPZs. So basically what we are seeing is the government is giving with one hand and so to speak, taking with the other hand. And now this then raises the question whether the EPZ entities that are then being given this opportunity at this time where we have a pandemic will actually be able to access the local market at competitive prices. Again, the jury is out there, but we can see again, the balance for governments to try and get revenue, but also try and uh, encourage some of these businesses that are then trying to survive. And so we hope that As Parliament debates this uh, topic, they will bear that in mind and perhaps say that uh, the 2.5%, this is not the right time. Otherwise, these businesses will then struggle to sell into the domestic market. Thank you.
0: Awesome. And um, now, as we finally come to the last bucket, I'd like us to engage Joe Gedaiga, who is the expert on those issues that are in the finance bill that are non-tax in nature the non-tax legislative amendments. So Joe, kindly give us an overview of what was happening in this space. And then some two specific questions that I'd like you to address are uh, with regards to number one, the road management agreements. We have seen that in the finance bill, there's a taxation where people will be charged uh, there are road tolls for using various roads Uh, and the question would be you know given that this taxation of this nature road tolls is a fairly new phenomenon in Kenya not many people have experienced uh, a situation where you have to pay for using a road in what ways can the government think of introducing or implementing this to ensure that it is embraced and adopted by road users so that's on roads and the second one is on uh, private equity and venture capital Please speak about what is going to happen in terms of regulation in this space and, you know, Kenya being the East African hub for a lot of private equity and venture capital financing, can this regulation affect this uh, status in any way, positively or negatively? Over to you, Joe. Uh,
2: Thank you, Prince. Well, it's important, firstly, to understand that, generally speaking, the finance bill is very much a revenue raising type of instrument. So most of the issues that the finance bill is going to deal with tend to be more of a, a largely issues dealing with tax. Now it is possible for you know some uh, other sort of miscellaneous changes to come through the finance bill. It's one of a number of other uh, legislations that allow for miscellaneous uh, amendments to to statutes, um, and 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 so for the most part, uh, a lot of these um, uh, amendments would probably be more. Uh, nothing significant that warrants, for example, uh, a major overhaul of a, a specific piece of legislation. So they tend to be uh, consequential or minor or uh, consequential sort of amendments that would be made. Um, that's not to say that they can't be important. Um, and uh, I think you know the two examples that you have cited, um, it, you know, when when you analyze them in a little bit more detail, you can see that they probably have a, a, a significant implication. Um, looking at, uh, firstly, the changes to the uh, Public Toll Roads Act, um, that, uh, uh, you know, changes around the the, the, the scheme for road management agreements. Um, this scheme is not new uh, in the sense that it's 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 been reflected in the Public Tolls Act um, uh, uh, for a long time, and the public toll, toll art deserves the legislation that came into place in 1984. And I think uh, for some of us with a few gray hairs, we can remember sort of those, uh, those uh, early years in the 80s, uh, where you did have toll roads, or the, the concept of toll roads had been um, uh, had been uh, uh, implemented, and you, know, you, you found various um, Major highways at toll stations, Um, but that means of um, um, revenue raising for the purposes of um, maintaining roads, I think, was uh, 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 over time uh, it was abandoned, and I think much of the revenue raising was probably done through the roads levies. Um, So it's interesting to note this change and whether the government is sort of heralding a return to tolling. Uh, there have been, um, uh, we, we've seen in the press uh, over the last few years, um, hints that uh, this was an avenue that the government was uh, looking to re-adopt for the purposes of either building new roads or alternatively uh, maintaining existing roads. Um, now, the specific changes under, uh, under the, that are proposed under this finance bill um, are basically uh, one to, uh, as currently um, uh, drafted, the public toll roads requires road manage- management uh, agreements um, to be approved by parliament before they become effective. Uh, it, uh, it is proposed to amend that to remove the need for parliamentary approval. And so there's probably a big question there as to why we would remove that oversight. Um, um, and uh, then, especially when it's considered with the other amendment that's proposed to that legislation, which is, um, you know, the, the other changes tend to introduce a bit more flexibility in terms of how, how the, the tolling systems and the means of collection can be can be adapted by the contracting parties. It, it it gives them more flexibility to determine the me- mechanism um, for, for for levying and collecting tolls. Um, And then secondly, um, it allows the the, the, the entity that has been given the road management uh, agreement uh, to also have an adjustment uh, on the toll. So the minister can set a base toll, but then the the contracting party is also able to um, have a means of adjusting that toll. So again, the question then is, if, if, if such a toll and such an adjustment mechanism might have implications in terms of increasing a burden to the public purse, um, why would you want to remove the, the, you know, the, 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 the oversight of that type of arrangement away from parliament, which is in effect the representatives of the people? So, in a way, it's a curious amendment. uh, uh, And and unfortunately, the explanatory memorandum to the finance bill doesn't really give you that rationale. But I see it uh, as such a significant change the fact that you remove uh, parliamentary oversight over something like that, that it does warrant further explanation. And unfortunately, we don't have that. Um, The other interesting uh, amendment that has come through uh, or that's been proposed through the finance bill to that app is the setting up of a national road stall uh, fund. And so um, all the tolls that will be collected under road uh, management uh, agreements um, are supposed to uh, then be uh, remitted uh, to that that fund. So very much a a revenue raising measure, um, but there are the implications of which really need to be uh, fleshed out and, and made public so that we can then effectively assess whether this is beneficial to uh, the citizens of Kenya or whether this is just going to be another form of of, 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 of taxation um, that will make our lives more difficult. Um, now, turning to the proposed regulation around uh, private equity funds and venture capital funds, um, I, I think it's important, firstly, to uh, note the, 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 that, that it's not a blanket regulation of all P and, and venture capital funds. The, 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 the qualifier to come under that regulation is if the P or venture capital fund uh, takes public money. Now, uh, public funds. Now, that's not defined for you under the Capital Markets Act, and it's also not defined in the proposed amendments. But when you read the explanatory memorandum, it makes it then clear that who the government is, uh, I mean, what the government is thinking about is pension funds. So to the X ex- and, and, and and so this change has been motivated by, um, it's been motivated by a proposal the government had um, um, introduced uh, through the 2015, 2016 budget speech, um, whereby they had indicated that they would allow, um, uh, pension funds, Kenyan pension funds, to allocate up to uh, 10% of their portfolio towards private equity funds. Um, And so, looked at in that way, I suppose it's a concern that because those pension funds represent public money, so to speak, then it is important that there's some form of uh, oversight or regulation uh, through the Capital Markets Authority over those PE funds that they take that sort of money. Uh, because currently, uh, uh, for the most part, PE funds uh, uh, and VC funds are unregulated in Kenya. They do not require to get a license from a capital markets authority. The rationale typically is that, you know, they, it, it, what they invest is private money, and and who they get the money from tend to be sophisticated investors who can make investment decisions for themselves. Whereas, largely, the, the the mandate of the capital markets authorities is to protect. Uh, what you regard as retail unsophisticated investors, uh, and largely who invest through the public capital markets like the stock the securities exchange and the like. Um, But uh, I suppose to to the extent that a portion of their money that sits with pension funds is then uh, invested into PE funds, then you can see some sort of regulatory concern about you know how, how 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 you know probably around the, tran- the, the the lack of transparency. Sometimes you you find with any private companies, including private equity funds, they have no obligation to report to the wider public or to any regulator. They report to their shareholders, and for the most part, governance is a contractual agreement between the fund and the investors. um So um, it, it now. In, in in the context of your question around, is this likely then to impact, you know, the ability of uh, startups to uh, raise funds if PE funds are going to be shy uh, uh, about getting regulated? Well, for the most part, um, even when you look at your typical PE, the uh, typical PE doesn't really invest in startups. Um, they tend to look for either, you know, larger, um, Entities uh, that have a, 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 a track record uh, or a business track record, uh, either at the early stage and ultimately to larger, more mature entities. Um, now, venture capital funds again also tend to uh, focus uh, largely on early stage, uh, but they they may have a mandate also to to invest in um, uh, in, in in some startups, but very much dependent on you know the nature of the business of the startup the sector that it's in the management that is that's in place and at that at that, at that stage uh, you know the, the venture capital fund wants to have some exposure so the the large bucket of investment capital for uh, startups tend to be either high net worth individuals uh, or what you might call angel investors um, or what you might uh, regard as impact funds, uh, you know, the, 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 there's almost as a, 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 a social mission or a social enterprise mission to an impact fund because it's really trying to get um, those sort of businesses off the ground. And then at a later stage, the PE funds will come in. So um, regulating PE funds uh, that take pension money, I don't think will necessarily have such a big impact on uh, whether or not startups are able to access funding. Um, I think for the most part, the sources of funding for startups are not going to be caught within this bracket and are not going to be the subject of this regulation. Uh, It's really to try to get those PE funds that solicit funds from large pension funds. Um, And and those tend, tend to be the larger PEs um, but uh, it may affect uh, the attractiveness of uh, pension money as a potential um, uh, source of funding for PE funds, because what the PE fund will need to do is make a uh, um, weigh up the benefits of, um, you know, having flexibility to manage its affairs and apply its strategy mm. uh, without, too much ready, without too much regulatory burden versus whether or not they really, really want to tap into pension money because pension money is a vast pool of capital, and it tends to be long-term, and it's very attractive to PE funds if they can get their hands on that. So, um, to wrap up, to the I think more needs to be done in terms of fleshing out what this regulation looks like. Uh, I, 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 I think it's not enough for 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 to introduce an amendment in the form that's in a finance bill, basically saying. Uh, and now they'll need to get licensing from the cma because there's a whole load of obligations that come with that which may not be necessarily suited for the private equity model so you you either then allow some form of licensing but you 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 you, you then also allow some self-regulation for the industry um so that uh, for the most part they are exempted from the kind of onerous requirements that would apply to managers of public money um, so that's that's what I'd say around the, around those proposed uh,
0: changes. Well, thanks for that. I think you've covered that section very meticulously. And it's important for our audience uh, and our listeners just to, to learn that, you know, in as much as the finance bill contains a lot of discussion around tax, there are other things, very intricate details that go on in other categories. And so it's important for them to look at that. And I think at this juncture, we've been able to cover all the major buckets that we wanted to talk about today. So I'd just like to invite each one of you to give us your final thoughts, your final remarks, and your way forward regarding this 2020 finance bill. We'll begin with uh, Titus, move on to Edna, then to Morris, and finally finish with Joe. So over to you Titus.
1: Yeah, thank you very much, Prince. I think the, in in conclusion, what I can say is that there's obviously a lot of change in the tax field, uh, in the tax arena. We've had the Tax Law Amendment Act. We've had uh, now the finance bill. And even uh, something else we've been discussed is that uh, what was also submitted to parliament was an income tax bill to overhaul the whole Income Tax Act. So it's a lot for businesses to sort of um, look at at one go, and it's a lot of change and there's a question there as to whether that is sort of correct policy to really kind of overload businesses with so much new changes and policy changes in such a period of time that even us as professional tax people are struggling to keep up with with all these changes but that's where we are and um i think uh it's 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 interesting times as we try to obviously navigate what is uh, a very uncertain future environment and uh, and and a tax policy that will need to change in tandem um with that uncertain future environment
0: thank you for your final remarks over to you edna
4: Thanks, Prince. Two comments from me. So the first comment is that there are definitely some very good proposals contained in the finance bill, but even as Parliament debates the finance bill, they need to balance the issue of how to mobilize revenue, how to raise more revenue, vis-a-vis ensuring that businesses remain afloat because we still have an economy to run as a country. And then the second comment is very closely tied to what Titus has said. With all these changes that are coming through, the question that keeps ringing: Do we have a national tax policy, and if it is available, can it be availed to the individual? I mean, to the public. And the reason why this is a concern is because there is a clear disconnect in some of the proposals between the government economic blueprint and the tax laws uh, that are being amended. We have gone through some of them, but they re- we need to have a very clear connection say between vision 2030 and between the government' big four agenda and the tax policy as a country thank
0: you prince thanks to you very well put over to you Morris
4: oh thank you prince i think my closing remarks will be you
3: know as the parliament and government thinks about the indirect taxes that's vat and excise is the need to always remember that the final impact is on the final consumer and at these times uncertain times, the final consumer is actually depressed in terms of ability to spend and so we hope that the government will realize this and cushion the end consumers to the extent possible even as they have introduced a 14 percent vat rate that then may not be trickling down to the end consumer so that's my plea to the government and to the national treasury and
2: parliament thank you
0: thank you finally we have joe give us your parting shot
2: Okay. Uh, for my, um, in my view, um, I think with the change uh, to the road management, I mean to the public toll, uh, public road toll act, um, I think that uh, removal of road management agreements from parliamentary oversight uh, leaves a very big question, and I think that is one that the government needs to explain and 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 uh, unpack. Um, and uh, then with respect to the proposal to regulate. Um, private equity that take public funds, I think uh, th- that provision, before it becomes enacted as law, I think there has to be a, a very clear uh, discussion around whether that's the best way uh, to meet the policy objective around any public funds that are invested through private equity, uh, because there could be other unintended consequences. I mean, one of the questions that uh, if, if you take the amendment at face value, It would also seem to apply to uh, funds that take money from international uh, uh, pension funds or uh, global pension funds. Now is that really the intention that government was after that uh, and will international pension funds then uh, or will PE funds want to take money from international pension funds if they're already taking money from those those sort of funds uh, are they going to want to continue investing in Kenya? So I think there could be different ways of dealing with the issue and it needs to be explored before we keep you know, rushing in with an amendment such as
0: this. Okay, awesome. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, our dear listeners. As you see, we have really thoroughly unpacked the Finance Bill 2020. We've taken it out of the box. We've lifted it, looked at it, put it back down, rolled it over. You know, we had the perfect team of experts today in the podcast who are really meticulous in analyzing the very, very intricate details of the bill. And we are very thankful at the Kenyan Wall Street to PricewaterhouseCoopers Kenya for uh, giving us this opportunity to engage in this insightful discussion with thought leaders in the field. We definitely hope to tackle more insightful discussions in the future. As usual, our dear listeners, you can get in touch with Kenyan Wall Street via our social media channels. On Twitter, you can follow us at, at Kenyan Wall Street and you can also engage with me with your questions and comments at Prince underscore Muraguri on Twitter so thank you keep safe keep checking out the finance bill educate yourself uh, and feel free to engage with also uh, the members of our panel you can find all their details at the PricewaterhouseCoopers official website and social media channels with that goodbye and stay safe